Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 8 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. So this is the first episode that we really focus on one area or issue, and it's an important one. Substance abuse, addiction, and recovery. There are a lot of stories about substance abuse, more than we realize, but there need to be more stories about recovery. People need hope, and this episode's guest is a shining example of that. He came into this struggle early, at 15 years old, and came into the job living a double life. He describes the first seven years of his career as excruciating. After years of trying to get clean and sober, and facing his fourth and what he felt his final attempt at suicide, everything changed. In that terrible moment, he found the strength and fortitude to ask for help. He has taken a deep dive into darkness and lived to tell the story. He's full of light, honesty, and has found his passion in sharing his journey back with as many people as possible. We talk boldly about pain and substance abuse, struggling and letting go, and thriving and giving back. Please share this with as many people as possible. You never know who's struggling, and you never know whose voice they may hear in the dark. It's an honor to introduce you to Chris Howe. Chris. Scott. How's it going? Great, thanks. How about you? <laughs> it's good. I'm going okay. Good, good. Doing all right. It's good to finally sit with you face to face. Yeah, it is nice to see you again. Yeah. yeah. So we met at the Mississauga Fire Fitness Initiative Day. About a year ago. Yeah. So yeah. I gave a little talk on the difference between, or the perceived difference between mental and physical health. Yeah, it was fantastic. And you came up afterwards and we had a little chat. We've sort of been connected since then and now what, a year or so later, we're making this happen. Yeah. It's amazing how those things work. So uh, let's start from the start. What was growing up like for you? I grew up in a good family. You know, I was taken care of. I was loved. I mean, it wasn't the perfect family, but I felt part of something. I felt good growing up. I did, however, feel that I was, um, I guess I was a bit of a loner. I didn't really, I didn't really have a lot of friends around me when I was very young. I didn't really have a lot of close friends that I could lean on and talk to. It was more, I kept to myself. The friends that I did make kind of kept them at a a distance, I guess. Um, I always felt like I was out of place in my early years. When I got into my teenage years, uh, my parents split. I think that's around the time where I started to do a little bit of rebelling. Probably that's around the time that I found my first drink. When I took my first drink, it was the answer to all my questions, um, all my concerns, all my insecurities. It solved everything for me. It was the first drink turned into the first drunk and I blacked out and I drank that way ever since. I don't know what it's like to drink like a normal person. I've always been a, a problem drinker since the first time. It's fascinating how one person can have a sip of something and their brain processes it in a completely different way. Absolutely. Did you feel that loner feeling? Did you sense that emotionally you were different, that you saw the world differently than other people and you couldn't share that? Did you think that there was something wrong with you because you saw things differently than everyone else? I think I did. I think that I I felt a lot of insecurity and anxiety when I was a kid. I don't know where that came from. I don't know if it was through experiences, good or bad. I'm not sure if it was just something that was in me, but I oftentimes felt definitely different than other people. I didn't feel like I was somebody that fit in. I felt like I really had to try hard to make and keep friends. And I think that was more me judging myself too hard. Always a very harsh critic of myself. I think everybody is to a point, but I, I, I feel that that caused a lot of anxiety and a bit of depression as a, as a child. Obviously, I didn't know that that's what it was called. I just thought that that's how people felt. I didn't. I felt different, but I didn't know how everybody else felt. Were you more 
emotionally sensitive, do you think? Absolutely. I would definitely call myself a sensitive child. Stimuli was impactful more to you picking up on other people's emotions? Absolutely. Um, I picked up on other people's emotions. I cared what everybody thought. Uh, your opinion of me was more important than my opinion of me, which that's a problem. I think at an early age, I started to people please. That led me down the path that I went. But I didn't realize that people pleasing was a problem uh, at the time. I just thought, hey, if everyone's happy with me, then everything's good. I was putting myself in situations that I wouldn't normally have wanted to be in just to keep somebody else happy or to keep a friend around or to try and appease somebody else. And I never was good with myself. I, I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I think that's pretty common with people in our work. We're helpful to other people and kind to other people, but we treat ourselves in a completely different way. We wouldn't, we'd never talk to someone else the way we talk to ourselves. I definitely agree with that. The negative self-talk is hugely impactful. I mean, still to this day, I, I get caught up in it. I think everyone does, but it's in the, the management of it is what's different today for me. Right. We fear confrontation with other people, but we don't fear confrontation with ourselves. That's right. The alcohol, did it become a struggle right away? You said the first drink and the impact of it. Then what followed after that? So the first drink for me, like, as I said, it was a blackout drunk. I woke up the next day. I had friends around me. I had people laughing and sharing stories about things that I did that I didn't remember. But all I knew is... I felt as if I had arrived, like I had finally some acceptance within my peers and some people older than me as well, which to me, that was that was something new. And uh, there was girls paying attention and, you know, older people giving me attention. It wasn't the right kind of attention, but it was attention. And that's what I had been seeking for years. Social approval. Social approval. Absolutely. From there, I started experimenting with drugs at an early age as well. Again, I was seeking that approval. I was trying to please the people I was trying to impress, I guess. I was around different circles of friends. I, I started to, to have different groups of friends. So I knew that certain groups of friends I could drink heavy with. And I knew if I went to the next group of friends, I had to do a little crazier of, of actions or I had to try different drug. You know, it was always a, it was just one thing after another and it kept escalating and escalating. And for me, I was always searching that same feeling I got that morning when I woke up after taking my first drink where I felt part of and I felt accepted. So I was always chasing that. So doing one thing a little crazier, a little more, a little one more drink, one more drug, a little bit, you know, harder drinks, harder drugs, that kind of thing. And of course, for a person like me, I quickly learned that I couldn't manage that. I couldn't control the amount I was taking. The frequency was getting that much more and I was receiving still more attention but again it was not really the attention that I needed rather not that I didn't need that attention it was the wrong attention it was not quality attention it was it was more like oh my god he did this that was outrageous or you know I can't believe he's still going or you know that kind of thing I can't believe how much he drank I can't believe how how late he stayed up or how many days he went on a bender this kind of thing or it was always, I was looking for that shock factor, I think. It's interesting because when you first said, when I had that first drink, it solved all my problems, my first thought, uh, and maybe other people's as well, would be it was the physical feeling that uh, relieved all the stress and worry. And I'm sure that was there. But what I'm hearing as you keep speaking is that what it solved was the need for social connection. So it was almost more of the next morning, the approval was it equally physical and emotional and mental, or was it more one than the other? I think during the night, it was more of a physical thing because 
got to finally let my guard down. I get to, I got to be a little outrageous and have an excuse. The next day, it was how many friends had I made or what stories were there about me? Was I going to be invited to the next party? Or I guess on the outside, I wanted to make it look a certain way. Um, I wanted to be the life of the party. I wanted to be the heavy drinker, but I didn't want to be known as the alcoholic. I wanted to be the heavy, I wanted to be, you know, a superhuman, a superhuman. Yeah. And you can make it look that way for a period of time, but nobody sees what, what happens the next day. Nobody knows how it feels the next day for those people where we can't control ourselves. All we're thinking about is where can I get the next drink, the next drug, the emotional roller coaster that you're on the next day is, it's just absolutely painful. It goes from depression, anxiety, to a feeling of acceptance, back down to depression again. And it's like I said, it's a roller coaster, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, and all this time, you're thinking about, when do I get the next one? When do I get the next drink, the next drug? When do I get to feel that way again? And when do I get to be accepted in that group again? Would it be fair to relate it to, it seems like a self-induced or manufactured bipolar? Yeah, I think that's fair. It's not that you have that mental health issue of bipolar, but you're manufacturing in a way of these manic and depressive episodes. I believe so. I went from these periods of total acceptance. I felt like I was right where I belonged. I felt like everybody loved me to hours later. I was deep in this self-loathing, depressive, anxious state that I couldn't control. When this started, uh, were there any negative interactions with people were friends and family picking up on it uh, was there any of that at all I think people started to notice probably in my late teens that I was way overdoing it I'd gotten into some harder drugs like I started using cocaine and I started experimenting with different routes to take the drug so I you know I ended up by the time I was 18 I was an, uh, an IV drug user I toyed with a bunch of different substances and I think it became pretty obvious to a lot of people around me that there was a problem and I wasn't able to manage or handle what I was doing because the rest of my life was falling apart. What started as a tool for acceptance became just a wake of destruction and chaos behind me. So I, I used to look forward to the next day when I found out about all the crazy things I did. And, you know, the tables turned very quickly to I dreaded waking up the next day because I knew there was going to be problems. I knew people were going to be concerned. I was scared to to learn what I had said or done to somebody that was, you know, done in a hurtful manner. But for a while, that's not enough to deter using. It wasn't because I could say I was sorry and people would accept my apology. And that was a clean slate for me. And I'd go and do it all over again. It's insanity. I kept doing the same thing and expecting a different result. The result did get different. It got worse and worse and worse. It never got better. The more situations I was putting myself in or finding myself in, um, I was I was hanging out with different people. I was involved in different things that were definitely not me. It was things that would terrify me in a sober state of mind, but intoxicated, I think this is a great idea. This is crazy or this is, you know, I can do this. I can get away with this. And, you know, it got to the point where, you know, it was terrifying. It was scary. I didn't, I was living my whole life on edge for one reason or another. This all happened early on before you even got into your emergency services. How were you funding this? Were you working? Yeah, so I was working different jobs. I mean, I had um, I had moved around a little bit. I went out to New Zealand for a little while to try and, I guess I would say, outrun my problem. I, I was aware that the problem was getting 
uh, a little worse. And uh, I went out there sort of doing a uh, geographical cure. I realized pretty quickly that I brought myself with me. So I brought the problem with me. I found everything. The same people. I, I knew where to find it. I knew who had it. I would gravitate to people that were just like me. So would you say that was your first attempt to remove it from your life? I didn't really know it at the time, but I would, looking back now, I would say, yes, that was what I was trying to do, reinvent myself, I guess, in a way. But I came back with my tail between my legs, you know. I moved down to the Cayman Islands, worked down there for a year as a bartender, and I was behind a bar with a till full of cash, and, you know, everybody around me was doing the same thing. So, of course, I just got worse and worse. So, yeah, I did do a lot of different jobs. I was doing some kind of odd jobs. I was doing some bartending I will say I was I was doing some things that weren't uh, weren't completely legal, but you know you do some things that um, you're not proud of, and again it's not you. It wasn't, but it was uh, it was kind of a last resort. I needed to fund my addictions, and I needed to keep that party going. I needed to keep up that persona. To be honest, I was terrified to be sober because if I was sober for any period of time, I'd have to deal with the mess that was underneath all that the depression that I hadn't dealt with, the anxiety, the self-loathing, the fearfulness, the dishonesty, you know, everything that comes along with uh, that lifestyle. You know, I was scared to face it. That was it. When did uh, emergency services come on board in your mind? Why did it come up? You mentioned to me uh, before we started talking here that uh, you went to school for business to start with. Yeah. When I moved home from the Cayman Islands, I thought I should go to school. Um, I, I went to school in Toronto for a business marketing course. My father's side of the family was uh, in business, and I thought, you know, maybe I can get in on that. They were doing quite well at the time, and I thought, you know, maybe I can jump on that, and that will be the direction for my life. I had never grown up looking at emergency service as uh, an option. I didn't, you know, I wasn't the type of kid that was chasing fire trucks down the road or, or anything like that. It was never on my radar. I th always thought business. I got kicked out of that school after the first semester. I just wasn't showing up and I was doing my thing. And I was in Toronto. So there was, you know, there was a lot more options. There was a lot more people. There was a lot more anonymity too. For me, that was a big thing. So I, I moved home after getting kicked out of school. And, you know, I was working some odd jobs. I was trying to help out in a tattoo shop and that sort of thing. And after everything, I ended up pawning my stuff there just to pay rent. And I, again, I came home defeated. I ended up getting a job in a machine shop in St. Catharines. I worked there for two years and I was renting an apartment off of a paramedic um, in St. Catharines and I'd sit out and have drinks and smoke or whatever and we chat and he just started talking to me about his job and of course I was complaining about my job. I was being paid well and able to support my habits and keep a roof over my head but I wasn't passionate about it. I felt that I could do more. So he talked about paramedics, told me about what work on the ambulance was like, and I was interested. He told me it was a two-year program, and uh, I applied, and I, I got accepted to it. It was really difficult. I was trying to learn how to, how to save people's lives when I couldn't manage my own. So that was a very big hurdle for me. It's amazing how the strength and perseverance and fortitude that is actually living in you at all this time, mm -hmm. how you're able to thrive and and achieve success even though you're hindering yourself right where some people fully clean and sober might struggle with tackling something like that that says something very positive about you actually 
looking back, I think that, yeah, absolutely. But at the time, it wasn't really apparent to me. I was I was white knuckling it and I was doing what I could to get by. Yeah, so I finished uh, I finished the course. I went to work for a little under a year out in Haldeman County, um, working on the ambulance. It was a great job. I had a great partner. But to be completely honest, I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't comfortable with my skills. I wasn't confident. I felt less than. I don't want to say I cheated my way through school, but I, I had cut some corners. And that's not the kind of job you want to go into without confidence. You have to have full confidence in your skills. It's other people's lives, right? So going to work every day, I was terrified. And, you know, I relied heavily on my partner and thank God for him because uh, he got me out of a lot of sticky situations. And um, I realized soon after I started to work that I couldn't do it as a career. It wasn't resonating with you. It wasn't. But I had completed the schooling. I did like the idea of helping people. Even then, when I couldn't help myself, I still did like the idea of helping people. And it, you know, so I looked at what are my options with this paramedic diploma? And it was either police or fire. With what I was doing at the time, to be honest, there's no way I could have been a police officer. Uh, and I don't, I truly don't believe I have the personality for it. Were there any run-ins with the law? There were, absolutely. Is there any kind of record at that time that you wouldn't, it wouldn't be an option to get on police? No, not at the time. That stuff came later. But I was always seen with some bad people. I was, I was around a lot of criminal activity. And I definitely was on, I was definitely on their radar, I would say. I didn't have a criminal record, so I, I could still apply. But yeah, to be honest, I mean, I got respect for police officers, but I couldn't do the job. Did you have any interactions with ambulance and fire? Were you ever in need? Were you ever taken to the hospital? I was taken to the hospital, but not from ambulance or fire. We'll drive each other to the hospital or wait it out. I became a bit of a chameleon, so I'd drink with certain people, then go do drugs with other people. And then always by the end of the night, I ended up by myself, and that's when things got really scary. So when things did get out of control, I would find myself waking up in really strange places uh, with a lot of questions that I couldn't find answers to. Those were the times I probably should have had somebody call the ambulance for me because I don't know what kind of damage I was doing to myself. So I looked at fire as an option. Um, everyone was telling me about this course down in Texas that they were taking, and uh, I had a few friends that got hired out of paramedic school with the fire department. They said, yeah, go do it. It's a great job. I think you'd be great at it, that sort of thing. And I was looking for a change. And uh, again, I wanted to get out of town. I wanted to go somewhere else. So uh, that sounded like a great option. So I applied to school there, went down, took that four-month course. I loved it. I kind of fell in love with the job down there. It presented different challenges for sure. But I really liked the idea of having a crew together, you know, four guys that, or more that you can count on. It was definitely challenging. I was out of my element there, you know, and I didn't fit the aesthetic. I didn't have the same mindset as a lot of the guys I was in school with. I didn't look the part. I didn't really act the part. And I was doing very questionable things. And um, I still made it through school and I still loved every minute of it. And I made a lot of great friends. I had a lot of great experiences down there, but it was a challenge for me. I felt very, very inferior. Growing up, you know, I was always smaller than most of the kids. And by the time I went to fire school, I was so out of shape from drinking and drugging. Yeah, fitness obviously wasn't like high on the priority list. Oh my God, I'm, I'm disgusted. And when, I, when I, people show me pictures of myself from back then, I can't even believe it's me. I wasn't taking care of my body. I wasn't taking care of my mind. I wasn't taking uh, care of my emotional state either. And like three huge things that needed to change. So after I finished school there, I came back and... Honestly, you know, I got hired 
fairly quickly after I graduated fire school. So within the year, I was hired on with Niagara Falls. I should back it up a little bit. Before I had gone to paramedic school, I did um, have an introduction to recovery or sobriety. Somebody in the factory I was working with had kind of noticed that I was having issues, having problems. He knew that I think he could just recognize it in me. And this guy, he was this big, burly, tattooed man with a big beard. He looked like a biker. In fact, I think he was like an old Satan's Choice guy. And he would just stare at me and give me this look of disapproval. One day he came up to me and he, he gave me, you know, this look of a disappointed father and said, kid, you know, if you ever get sick and tired of being sick and tired, give me a call. And he gave me a, a piece of paper with his name and number on it. I didn't really know what he meant by that at the time, but for some reason I didn't throw the number out. I kept it in my wallet. Well, it wasn't confrontational. It wasn't. It was... He's like, listen, when you make the choice, yeah. so it was all on you. That's it. He kind of just presented the opportunity to me. So that was a huge thing. There was no pressure. He just put it out there. And uh, a couple months later, I, I found myself in a tight spot. No friends around me, no money. Nobody would front me anything. I couldn't pay the bartender. It, I was at my... I was at the end of my rope, really, and I uh, came across his number in my wallet, and I gave him a call. He picked me up, brought me for a coffee. We talked. He told me he'd been sober for about 20 years at the time, asked me if I'd like to go to a, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting the next day. And at the time, I was, <laughs> I was so desperate, and you know, I didn't know what it was all about, but I said, yeah. Well, I guess I was 22 when I was first introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, it was a pivotal moment when I look back because that was the first time I walked into a room and saw a bunch of sober alcoholics and addicts with smiles on their faces. They were very welcoming. They were very, uh, they were just warm people. And I had been used to that before, you know, they were reaching their hand out to shake my hand. And, you know, the first thing I thought is, oh, what do you want from me? You know, I haven't done anything crazy yet. I'm not drunk and yet you're being nice to me. What's going on? Exactly. Why are you accepting of me? I'm at my lowest point here. I'm not even drunk. Why are you accepting? What's your angle? Yeah. And that's what it was. I was trying to figure out everybody's angle. Mm. Probably so I figure out my next move. But yeah, these people wanted nothing in return. They just wanted to see me get healthy and stay healthy. Unfortunately, that didn't last for too long for me. But that was my first introduction to, you know, to the rooms of uh, recovery. Yeah, there's a lot of questions in my mind. I, I did a lot of comparing. I did a lot of, um, I'm not that bad yet. Or I'm not, you know, that hasn't happened to me. So I must not be an alcoholic. And and that sort of thing. You know, I fought it. There was a lot of language in those rooms that I didn't agree with at the time, too. And, uh, you know, I was young and I wasn't ready to stop yet. Physically, you weren't at your best, but did it affect your work in any other way? It did. I'll sort of take you to the early days of being a probationary firefighter. I didn't feel as if I belonged in the fire department. I didn't feel like I was worthy of it. And that was just because I didn't like myself. I hated myself. I didn't think I was worthy of anything good. But I was there for a reason. Some of the things that I heard when I got in first couple weeks of work and, you know, I heard some of the senior guys talk about whatever you do, don't show your weakness around here. We prey on our weak. It's a male dominant alpha world. You're not really meant to share at the time, at least for me. I felt like a lot of the senior guys were these tough, burly men that were you take your feelings and you stuff them down and you just keep plowing forward. Welcome. But by the way, you're not really welcome. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, and I will say I, I, I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of great guys and, and through the years there's been a lot of a lot of guys that were very, very helpful and instrumental in my recovery and, and growth in the fire service. But early years, I did try my very best to keep work life and social life 
completely different. But I couldn't. I was too deep to to keep that to myself. People would hear stories. You know, I would go out drinking with the guys after a set of day shifts. They'd see, like, I would drink a lot more than most people. And then I'd sort of take off and go do my thing after that. It started to get a little dicey. You know, my nights of drinking weren't one night of drinking. You know, when I went out, I went out for one drink. I stayed out for three days. There was some abuse of sick time. That was quite embarrassing. There was times where I, I would be so out of it. I just, I wouldn't call in. I'd just be MIA. And they'd do, police would come by and do a welfare check on me. And I don't know. I, I mean, it hurt. It hurt because I didn't want that for myself. I wanted to be a good person. And I was a good person. I was just making terrible decisions. I wanted to be a good firefighter. I wanted to have the respect of the guys, but I had no respect from anybody because I couldn't be trusted. You know, I, I truly believe that had more people been accepting of it, maybe I wouldn't have seen the light at a certain point. I wanted to be just a heavy drinker. I wanted to be the life of the party again. And I wanted to be that within the fire department because it was like, you know, that was the only manly thing that I really knew. And you'd uh, achieved success with that pattern. It had worked before, yeah. Yes, why yeah. would I stop doing this? It works. Exactly. And that was my identity. I wasn't, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I liked. All I knew is that when I drank and partied, it was, you know, it made people's heads turn. And again, it was a tension. That ties into us being on hard on ourselves in a way that we wouldn't be hard on other people too. We learn that when I'm extremely hard on myself and I treat myself this way, I get positive things in my life. Right. I succeed. I, I, I pass a course. I achieve a physical achievement. Yeah. Um, so because we're getting a positive reaction to a negative <laughs> action, Right. It's hard to break that pattern. Absolutely. And I didn't know any different. I really didn't. So work life and personal life started to spill over on each other. And I guess it was a world's colliding kind of situation where I was getting in trouble with the police and uh, they would contact my chiefs at work. My secret was out. As much as I tried to suppress it and keep it to myself and make excuses, I'd see people roll their eyes at me. I'd see I wasn't to be trusted at the time. Was anyone helping you and, and who was hindering you? Were there offers of support from work and also threats of losing your job? What was the balance of that? Yes, there was definitely offers of support. There was one guy in particular that had got sober in the past and he gave me a list of meetings after I'd gone through something. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd had a, a pretty serious run in with the law and there was some, some pretty severe consequences at the time. And I did fear for my job, absolutely. Every day I came into work, I thought... This is the last shift. Could be the last shift, yeah. Mm. Every time I saw a chief walk by, I thought, is he coming to tell me I'm done? Uh, did they find out? Do they know how bad it really is? Still living on edge, still living in fear. Absolutely. Every minute of every day was a fearful one. And I was making fear-based decisions, which is never good for a person like me or anybody, really. If you had to scale your anxiety level of what you thought was normal every day. You know, fast forward now to where you are now and you finally know what a zero feels like. What was your normal number? What did you think zero was? I would say, you know, I was walking around in a nine and 10 always. It would show emotionally and physically, you know, I was, I, I didn't realize I was grinding my teeth all night. Like I didn't, I couldn't even sleep soundly because I was so full of anxiety and you know, and in guilt, shame, remorse, all those things, like, I mean, it all plays into a terrible emotional state. And we're using drugs and meds to sleep? I was. I had to. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't do it on my own. 
it's important, I think, to point this out before we move forward. There's this opinion of when recruits and candidates come on the job and we hire them. I think I've spoken before about how sometimes we don't give them enough credit for the skills they have, the life experience they have, and what they know, that they come to us with this blank slate and then we build them into what we want them to be. I also think on the, the mental health side of things, there's this opinion too that they come into the job shiny and new, never having any issues or struggles, and then it's the job that builds up on top of them if, if it does at all. But you know, we need to recognize that people come into the job struggling and then the job can build up on top of that. Absolutely. I mean, everybody comes in with their own story. If you're suffering from mental health issues, which truly that that was my dilemma. It was a mental health issue that I was masking with other substances. Yeah, the job can definitely compound the problem. And, you know, just the fact that I mean, I know at the time the as a as a culture in the fire service, we didn't we don't really talk about our feelings. We don't really talk about you know, something that's making us depressed or anxious or making us sad, something we're scared of. We're not meant to, we're not meant to be scared. We're, we're supposed to be this held up to this certain standard mm-hmm. uh, and be able to handle anything that's thrown at us. But it's not the case. I mean, everyone, we're, we're human, you know. But yeah, I think, you know, people coming into the job with, uh, you know, mental health issues or concerns, um, I, th- I really think it would be great to have some sort of screening for that to say, okay, where are you at right now? And where do you need to be to start this career? So we test people and screen people for physical things, like if you have a back injury or uh, your eyesight needs to be adjusted. We might not even know it, especially even with the eyesight, you might not know it until you get tested for the first time. That's right. (laughs) Trying to get on and they say, by the way, your vision's not what it needs to be. Just go off, get it done. Here's what you can do and come back and reapply. Yeah. And there's no judgment attached to it. Get it done. You come back, you reapply and you're in. Um, it'd be nice for us to eventually get to that point where if you want to do this job, this can't be part of your life. Right. Then you have the opportunity to say, okay, awesome. This is important enough to me that I'll go off and get this fixed and then I'll come right back in. They recognize that you had the strength and fortitude and the perseverance and you wanted it bad enough that you did that. And then you're welcomed on board. You want to hire people that have struggles and overcome them. It proves to be a positive character trait. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's people that can overcome a problem like that are, are extremely strong people. To humble yourself enough to say, I do need help and ask, like, where can I get the help? Or where, what do I need to do? Where, what do I need to do to, to make it to that baseline mm. to, you know, to come in and, and be healthy when I start? So I asked about if there were any people that helped or hindered you. Mm-hmm. Were there calls that helped or hindered you? Were any calls mirrors to you that... You saw yourself in them. Were there calls that were inspirational to you? How was the job and running calls? How did that impact your mindset and worldview? I definitely, definitely feel that there was certain calls and certain types of calls that were a hindrance to my, my mental and emotional state at the time. Uh, those calls were suicide calls for sure. By the time I had finished my drinking and drug using, I had attempted suicide three times and I was going to try for a fourth and final time uh, when I finally decided that, you know, I need to make a change. Um, Overdose calls, that sort of thing, car accidents, it was all things that were in my, you know, I definitely saw myself in those calls and realized, you know, some of them that didn't make it, like, that's going to be me. I never looked at it and said, that would have been me. It was like, that's going to be me. And so that was terrifying. And, and, you know, to see some of the just the set and settings of these calls and see the people around and how they were affected and that sort of thing. It was, 
and I don't know, it kind of put put some things into perspective for me. Like if I choose to commit suicide, if I choose to keep using and, and, and abusing drugs and alcohol, I'm going to end up like one of these people and I'm going to hurt everybody around me. I didn't know how to feel emotionally about those calls. It scared me, but at the time, not enough to get me to fully commit to recovery. It's fascinating to me that you started down the path you did because of needing to please everybody and worrying about what everyone else thought. Um, so you act a certain way, you adapt, you give them what you think they want, and then you get this positive feedback to it. And then near the end of when you finally decide to make a change, um, you are obviously seeing, well, this is going to be me, that will be me. But your first thought isn't for yourself. Right. Your first thought is still that old habit of, I'm going to hurt other people, so I'm going to start to get better for them. Yeah. It's it's people-pleasing again, yeah. But for the first time, it had a positive push. Absolutely. As for people who were instrumental in my recovery, you know, I I did have a lot of support around me that I didn't even know about. A lot of my officers and my peers at work, I didn't realize that they were in my corner. But when I finally started to share about my problem and, and that sort of thing, they they really did step up. Some of the people that I thought were, like, frankly, I thought some of some of those people were my enemies ended up becoming some of my best friends. They're playing a role, right? They're playing a, they're putting on a facade that they're the dominant, but when they're really when the chips are down and you come to them human to human, that that drops away and all of a sudden you get the help. Yeah, for sure. And in my case, I think that everyone was so fed up with me and I knew that everybody probably, you know, they wanted the best for me, but they were probably so fed up with the fact that I just wouldn't take the help. I wouldn't accept the help. I wouldn't take a look at myself and what I was doing, what kind of what kind of chaos I was creating around my life inside and out of work. It was quite apparent to everybody else except for me. I was you know, I was the last one to know how bad it was, I guess. Mm. When I finally did get honest with myself and start sharing with others, it was like people were there in abundance and again, not the people I ever would have expected to be there. It was all just people were coming out of the woodwork and and it was great felt really good to have that support and you know to be able to feel that acceptance without drugs and alcohol without a mask so you were receiving offers of support were you also being awakened to the fact that other people had struggled exactly the way you had one person in particular at the beginning and then more people started sort of popping up talking about experiences and um, sharing a little more openly and honestly uh, about their past and you know where they are today and that stuff was great. That stuff was very inspiring. And um, to know that I had the support and uh, to know that I had, uh, well, to know that I had real friends for once in my life, people that actually cared about me and didn't want anything in return. That was, uh, that was a huge, huge thing for me. This happens at every level of the fire service. It happens in HR. It ha happens at City Hall. It happens with politicians where we all sort of play a part in this theater where someone gains a position of power per se uh, and we think that they they made it there because they they were the shiniest and the cleanest and the purest when we all know that people are people and there are probably people on the panel that are doing the hiring you know at every level that have struggled with addiction or other issues and have overcome it or maybe currently even still struggling with it, or they have people in their lives and their families that are struggling with it. Yeah. Yet, when we're hiring, you know, there's this fear that if anyone ever found out that you smoked weed, 
Yeah. We don't want someone like that. Right. 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 And, you know, I really feel like we need to like throw the veil off of that. Yeah. And just talk about it. And like we just mentioned before, how that should be a, an approved of character trait that you had the struggle, recognized it, had the fortitude and the strength and overcame it. That should be something you should be able to talk about in an interview and you should be lauded for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, that, that shows a lot of character, a lot of strength, like you said. And I know for myself, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. And I love to talk about it now. And if I were to go interview for another job today, that would be the focus of my conversation because it's something to be very proud of. It's something that shows, you know, you can overcome. It shows that you can adapt. It shows that, you know, you're a, a strong um, a strong person who can change. You, you should be applauded for that sort of thing and, and feel that you're able to speak openly and honestly in any arena. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? Right. Oh, you want a canned answer? Yeah. Or do you actually want a conversation here? Because <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, and... How many do they hear? You know, how many go, uh, fire departments doing a hiring? How many kind of robotic planned answers do they hear? What Trying to get to know the real person? We'll talk about some real stuff. Yeah, and which, which one would you trust more? Exactly. You heard the same answer from 10 people, and then one person steps up and gives you something real? Yep. I think I'm going to hire you. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And if you were on a hiring panel, there would be no theater at that point. It right. would be you being real, them being real, and just trying to have real conversation. Yeah. You mentioned the fourth and final attempt. So what was the turning point there? And then what was the, the path forward from that moment on? Okay, so um, to bring you up to that point in my life, I was 32 years old. In the last three years of my drinking and, and using, I had tried to commit suicide, like I said, three times. There was a lot of turmoil in my life, and I just didn't know how to... I really didn't know how to properly process any of my emotions and I, I was at my wits end so I woke up one day nothing particular was going wrong but I just woke up one day with the intent to to try to to do that the suicide for the fourth and final time I was going to make it I was going to do it and and do it for good you know it wasn't going to be a feeble attempt it wasn't going to be a cry for attention I just thought that that's where I was in my life this is the only way it's, it can end because I couldn't torture myself any longer. I really couldn't live the way I was living any longer. I couldn't deal with one more day that way. And, you know, between the ages of 22 and 32, I had been, I had bounced in and out of the rooms of recovery, whether it was NA, AA, CA, day treatment sort of thing, and, you know, counseling, whatever there was for me, I had, I had bounced in and out of these, kind of dipping my toes in the pool of recovery for 10 years. I think that through all those years of judgment and comparing myself to the others and thinking, you know, I'm not that bad. I sat there that morning writing out ways how I could commit suicide and how it would be the the least painful way and how it would impact the people around me the least because I had been exposed to that. Still considering other people. Yeah. A wave of emotions came over me and I just remembered all those people's smiling faces, all those people welcoming, shaking my hand wanting nothing from me and being accepting and all the little slogans that they gave me that I laughed at and said, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, who, that doesn't get you through the day. All those things, they just kind of like hit me at once and it made sense. And something spoke to me inside, inside of me that said, don't do it. Go check those people out one more time. Find out what this recovery thing's all about. And so I put my pen down. I stopped, you know, I stopped writing ideas uh, writing you know ways to 
to kill myself down. And I said, okay, it's going to end today, but it's not going to end that way. I'm going to walk into that room and actually seek the help. And when I did finally walk into the room, you know, I say this all the time. It was the same room I had walked into for 10 years, judging and comparing and being so defiant about everything to do with recovery. You know, I walked in that night and I was just kind of waving the white flag of surrender and I was in tears. I think I walked in with different eyes, different ears, different heart. I finally spoke up and said, in tears to another man, I need you. I need your help. How can I, like, show me the way, show me how to get better. I can't live like this anymore. I was ready to die hours ago. I need your help. And as soon as I just verbalized that to one person, I had just thousands of people at my disposal. Everybody that, everybody in that meeting, everybody, you know, in any of those programs, they were just there for me when I needed them. Like I said, they didn't want anything in, in return for my recovery. They wanted to see me do well. They wanted to have a, a hand in that. But the deal was, once I get well, I share that with, uh, you know, somebody else. And that's how I stay well. I think that's a small price to pay for, you know, my life back. And they gave me that. I had the support of all those people as well as people at work, family support, friends that I had thought written me off for good. All I needed to do was ask for the help. I had no idea it was there in abundance. I think it's an important lesson for anyone to take in that we always wonder how can I help what can I do and all you really can do is be kind whenever you can be kind be genuine and loving whenever you can be genuine and loving mm -hmm. because when everything came to that head it was all those small moments of people being happy in a moment kind in a moment genuine in a moment to you that added up to like a dam breaking yeah. and all of it together kept you from leaving that's right yeah Right. Yeah, so we, we all have a powerful piece to play. Yeah, I wasn't ready to accept any of that help until that moment. But all those seeds that were planted along the way finally started to bloom. What they said to me and the, the love they gave me unconditionally was it was there. And it was a culmination of 10 years of seeking help and then running, seeking help and running. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, when you hit your rock bottom, all that stuff, you know, it was there for me. And those people were there for me. How did that feel emotionally and physically, the moment that that fell out of your mouth asking for help? was? Did you feel and sense an, an absolute shift of energy in your life, the moment that, as a turning point, were you, were you aware of it, that that felt different than it ever had? That was the most pivotal moment in my life. That was just to, to verbalize that, because I had fought it for so long. And there was no going back. There was no going back. I was finally, I was outing myself, saying, I can't do it on my own. I tried to do it on my own for so long and it just got, you know, my best thinking keep, gets me in worse and worse situations, you know, gets me in trouble, gets me depressed, gets me anxious, gets me, the list goes on. So to finally say, I can't do it on my own, I need help. It was like this anvil being lifted off my shoulders and I'd, I've been carrying around for way too long. And in a way saying, here's who I am. This is me. This is who I am, except me or not. Yeah, here's the most broken version of myself, and I'm finally able to share that with you. I'm, sh I'm finally able to show it to you. Now help me fix it. Help me put it back together and help me build it back up. Unbelievably supportive people were just stepping up left, right, and center. 
I want everybody to have an experience like that in their life. Such an amazing, awe-inspiring experience and still is today. So what were the practical steps that followed that? Counseling? Mm-hmm. Did you go away to rehab? Um, what followed? Fitness, nutrition, sleep? How'd that all fall into play? Yeah, so uh, all of it really. Um, I did some day treatment stuff. I wasn't... Um, Looking back, I, I definitely would have qualified to go to you know an outpatient treatment center, uh, and we have a lot of fantastic ones available to us. I, I would have definitely benefited from that, but at the time, for me, my life was either in meetings, I was with my sponsor, I was at work, or I was on weekend retreats, that sort of thing. Speaking with a counselor, I was really used our um, EAP program. Um, I found that really helpful, um, but only helpful when I was forthcoming with information you know you get back from that what you put into it so as far as fitness nutrition goes I got active right away because I needed an outlet Um, I got into you know got back into boxing got back into Muay Thai um, started running again started to clean up the way I ate I figured you know if I was getting my mind right I had to get my body right and I had to get you know my emotions right as well so Definitely, you know, those contact sports gave me, um, it gave me a release. It gave me still a rush and, you know, it gave me, it gave me a sense of community as well because, you know, the people in those, um, in the, some of the, the clubs I was training at, they were a family and, you know, and I had some guys at work as well that were opening CrossFit gyms and this sort of thing. And again, family to be part of. So I, I was seeking out things that would give me a sense of community and acceptance but in a healthy way. It became a staple in my life for sure. And and in fact, I probably did it a little more obsessively than I should have <laughs> because that's my nature, that's you know? That's the personality. Yeah. yeah. So health, nutrition, activity. Uh, one of the big things I really, really had to suck up and deal with and humble myself greatly for was asking for help at work. You know, at the time I had been on the job for seven or eight years. I was a first class firefighter. Um, I knew I was going to be writing to be a captain soon. I had to go and ask some of the guys that were junior to me to help me, like show me. I ba- same thing. I had to surrender there, and I had to, I had to say, you know what? I can't be too proud to say this. I don't know how to do this part of the job. I need help. I think we all need to do that for sure. This idea spills over in my life every day. If I'm honest about something and I say I don't know, I need help. That's when I really get to learn. That's when I really get to thrive. The guys at work, they helped build me up. They stood beside me while while I did that. And they were, you know, they were patient. They were caring. They were, you know, they were soft about it. They didn't, you know, we can be hard on each other for sure in the fire service. And I mean, at least not to my face. I didn't get a lot of that. Those guys got to hone their own skills by teaching somebody else. I got to be seen in a different light. And I got to open myself up to, you know, just approaching the job differently. Just saying, you know. Yes, I've been doing this for eight years and you've been doing it for three, but I need you to show me because you know this part better than me. And I need to know it. I need to know it just as well as you do. So do you think that was the first time you started to really find love about the job? Did you start to fall in love with the job in a way that you never have before? Absolutely. I fell in love with the job again. Or yeah, like you said, in a way that I hadn't before. I gained a lot of respect for it and for the people around me. You know, I was able to go in and, and write to be an officer and go in 
with the confidence and skill set that I needed to to thrive in that environment. You know, I get to do some of that now. Um, I'm in, you know, acting ranks right now, and I love it. I, I wouldn't be where I am today had I not found recovery. I wouldn't be able to approach the job and accept things about the job uh, that I had to. So today, to be able to do that job is, um, you know, to be able to think clear-mindedly, to be able to, you know, look at a situation um, objectively and not be so self-centered and selfish about the job, you know, to care about the other people. That's a, that's a huge thing for me. Some people it comes natural too, but not me. I needed to, I needed to really work on those things, character defects, you know? Did you start turning around and helping others? Um, not right away. I had to get right with myself first, right? So that doesn't happen overnight. And so I had to build myself back up. So once I was comfortable in my own skin, I became comfortable with my story and I felt it was my duty to give back to the fire department uh, or emergency service, but my department in particular, because I felt over the years where I was in active addiction, I had sort of stole from the job. I wasn't a good employee. I wasn't a good coworker. I wasn't good to the public. I was a danger, putting myself in danger as well as everyone around me. I kind of got the idea that I'm going to basically deliver this program to my department where I just give a, a no-holds-barred account of my whole story from growing up as a kid to where I am today, uh, what I went through, and you know what I do to help people today. And that went over extremely well. I was really, really, really pleased to see that you know people were starting to kind of open up in a group setting and one-on-one. Um, I want to be a resource to the people at work and the people you know everywhere in, in our job um, or emergency services in general. I want to be a resource for somebody who's recovered from something from addiction uh, and alcoholism and, you know, uh, also mental health issues. Right. If I can share my story openly and honestly with a group of people who sat there through it, I think I'm being an example that way. And I'm opening the door for somebody else to share their story with me. And that's happened. And I've seen, you know, a number of people get clean and sober, you know, within the fire service who may not have had that opportunity if they didn't hear somebody else talk about it openly and honestly. So I think that's the key, just to be, you know, not hang on to your problems, not hang on to your emotions, not hang on to, you know, try to live up to this uh, persona that we're supposed to be. I, I think it's okay to show the soft side every once in a while. It's okay to talk about how sad we feel or how bad we feel or, or the fact that we can't handle something in our life. We're supposed to be there to lean on each other. Like, like we all get the job under the impression that this is a, a family unit, the fire department. But if my brother, my sister, you know, was struggling with something, I wouldn't just ignore them and talk about them behind their back. You know, I'd reach out a hand. I'd say, hey, what can I do for you? Talk to me. I'm here for you. You know, let's get through this together. And that's what we should be doing for each other, really. If you can show that you are dedicated to grinding it out on the job and learning the skills and you're humble and you show that you can be kind and soft and genuine and authentic. Yeah. I think that wakes people up. They don't see that often enough. Right. That you can be the yin and the yang at the same time. For sure. That they're a part of each other. It's actually what makes you the best that you are. Definitely. I think the culture is changing with like new younger people getting on the job and you know they're I think we're being brought up a little differently and a little more accepting of everyone as a whole, but it needs to start from the top down really. Because, you know, you get on the job, you could have, you know, the best attitude when you do get on the job and you hear some of the negative talk from up top and, you know, you follow suit and, you know, that's the snowball effect. And by the time you're at the top, you're talking the same way those guys did and the junior guys hearing it from you. 
So I think um, the cycle has to stop and I think we have to start really looking at we keep our bodies in shape, we eat well, you know, but what about what about the emotional stuff? What about the mental stuff? You could look great on the outside. You could eat fantastically clean, be the picture of health that way. But if your head's not right and if your heart's not right, then you're not right. Yeah. And yeah. yet we have a doctor, we have a dentist, we have a massage therapist, we right. have a chiropractor. We take care of all these things. Yeah. I'll deal with my mental health on my own. Thanks. Yeah. And I hear it all the time. It's the stigmatized thing about, you know, I don't want to talk to anybody about my problems because then somebody will know, you know, somebody will know the truth. But how are you going to deal with the truth if you don't share it? Right. Right. Yeah. So the path to recovery is different for everybody. You know, me in particular with what I was dealing with, medication was part of it, but and okay. still is, but it's not that way for everyone. So some people benefit from going away into an inpatient. You know, they check out. Being at work at the same time as they're recovering is a hindrance. It's They wouldn't make it through. But yours, would you say that it was necessary to have work still be a part of it? You mentioned, you know, focusing for the first time in this new way with skills and grinding it with the skills and yeah. doing that physical work and then being at work and asking for help to the people at work who you hadn't asked for help for. So did being at work help? Did it help save you? I believe for myself it did. And there's two reasons why. I mean, for, for one, people at work had seen me try to get sober unsuccessfully a bunch of times. And I didn't want, I wanted to kind of keep it quiet at first. I didn't want people to be like, oh, here he goes again. Or like, you know, how long is this going to last? And if I did take time off work and I wasn't successful in recovery, I would have felt like a huge failure. That's the wrong attitude to have. That's the wrong reason not to go to treatment. But at the time, that's what, that's where my head was at. I wanted to stay in the environment that I was going to be in through the change. I wanted people to be there to help me through the change, but I also didn't want to remove myself from anything and have to reintegrate. So for me, doing my recovery stuff on the weekends and at night or, you know, depending on what shift I was on during the day and then doing the work at work was another side. So if I didn't have if I didn't have work in my life, yeah, I would have had a ton of time to spend on recovery. But then I get back to work and have to reintegrate into it. I wanted it to just not I wanted it to be more organic and I wanted to get well in the in the atmosphere that I was going to be in for the next, say, 25 years. So still being at work, did anything set you back? Were there any calls that uh, made it harder? Was not getting proper sleep overnight making it harder? Did you get lucky and it only was an upward curve? How did that go for you? To be completely honest, I think I've been pretty lucky that way. Um, I've been able to, I think, process and handle the calls differently now that I've found recovery and kind of done that self-work. Even those calls that would have really set me back in the past, uh, some of those calls that I mentioned earlier, I look at those a little differently now, and I think I process them a little more healthy now. But during the healing process, during your attempts to recover? You know what? To be completely honest, I was really fortunate to have a pretty good run there when I, like, while I was. The fire gods were good to you. I think so. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the calls. <laughs> you deserved that, it. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, I needed it at the time, right? Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd, had I got one of those calls that may have set me back, I don't know where I would have been. I don't know where that would have put me emotionally. The nice thing and the thing that I felt really good about coming into work is that I knew that I had support around me. So if I did have one of those calls, you know, I knew that I could lean on a captain or a peer or, you know, even my chiefs. I thought they didn't think I was worthy of the job anymore. I didn't think that they wanted me around. I thought that they they were looking for a way to can me. And those guys have been some of my greatest supporters now. They love to hear me talk about my story. They love to hear me share my story and, you know, do things like this where, you know, I can I can get out there and, and talk about this on a in an open forum like that. Did the structure and responsibility 
of being at work and the limitations help too because you knew while you're there you can't use yeah was that the safest number of hours every day that you spent well it was a safe space for sure and especially after i had started to become a little more open about it and basically out myself to everyone that yeah here's where i'm at i am uh, an alcoholic and a drug addict and i'm sober for you know whatever whatever period of time then uh, i think i probably really started talking about it around six months or eight months in where i started to share it with everybody i think that was i was accountable and i had the support of the people at work so if i was having a bad day or if i felt like oh you know like today is a day that i could you know i would really love a drink today there was guys that had my back guys wouldn't let me do that guys wouldn't let me come out even if i was going to drink water or pop or whatever they wouldn't let me come out after a shift yeah i felt good about that because i knew they were they have my best interest at hand it wasn't like before where they they might not tell me about where they were going because they didn't want me there. Right. Um, were there any awkward moments where people just forgot what you were dealing with and they would be opening up about drinking and being stupid and, and they go, oh God, I, I totally forgot you were... Did anything like that happen socially? Because it just falls off people's tongues, right? It's like yeah. coffee and booze and drugs are so much a part of our culture. It's ridiculous. For sure. Um, yeah, people would, of course, people would be sharing stories and then they look at me and they're like, oh, does that make you uncomfortable kind of thing? But like, I find that when people are talking about, you know, how crazy the night was or they look at me like, oh, should I not say that? Or, you know, not anymore so much, but they used to. And I can just make a joke about it now, you know, like I, I will make a joke about how bad, how much worse it would have been if I had been there or, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing, right. you know, it's just, and you know, I've had people that, you know, I would go out for lunch with. They'd order, a, you know, they'd order a water when I know they were, you know, they really want to have a beer or they'd ask me permission to have a beer. And, you know, that's a nice thought. And I really appreciate them considering my feelings that way. But my problem is my problem. I don't want you to adjust your life because of my problem. I've got that stuff taken care of and I'm, I'm working on it every day. Do your thing and just be comfortable around me. And most of my friends now, they're, you know, they're so comfortable with just the way I am. They don't even think twice. And I'm more offended if you don't order the drink and you want the drink. Right. I'm more offended if you don't order it because I'm here. I'm not going to lunge across the table and take it on you. Right. <laughs> you know, it's right. I, I'm, I'm pretty it's all your fault. If you yeah. hadn't ordered that, this wouldn't have happened. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I do appreciate the, the thought from people and, and it, that does make me feel good because it shows that people care. So if you had to put your journey so far and say, break it into thirds, a time when you were just surviving and then a time where you were living and then a time when you, for the first time in your life, started thriving. How would you segment those? When did the thriving start? I guess that's a more accurate. I'd say six months into sobriety or recovery. You know, I've been through 12 steps with my sponsor. You know, I was making amends with people that I had, you know, I had harmed in the past. I was being honest with people at work. I was learning. I was starting to feel confident again. And and I think I was a little bit riding that pink cloud of uh, this is a whole new world for me. Um, and it was, and it still, it still is, it's beautiful. But I think the thriving started when I finally was able to talk about my recovery with people. My first sponsor took me through the steps at a pretty rapid pace because, you know, he said, that's what, that's what you're meant to do. You know, you got to get through this stuff and start helping other people as fast as you can. That's the point of this program. You know, I almost, I blinked. It was like six months and I was able to start helping other people. I think that's when I really, really started to feel part of and uh, a real useful, sober member of society where I could give back. That's, I think, the real thriving. I sponsor a number of different people um, in and out of the fire service. Um, I go into the detention center and put on meetings and talk to the guys in there, either one-on-one or as a, as a group. 
Um, I do some work at the, or it's not work, it's volunteer stuff at the detox center. I do things like this with you, which is absolutely amazing. And I get to speak to other departments. So what I was doing with my department and telling my story and giving a bit of a presentation, I'm starting to do a lot more of that with other departments. And um, I'm actually going to speak at the Chiefs Conference in uh, Ottawa in September. So there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of giving back and that's where I really feel purposeful. Um, so that's, I think that's the thriving is the sharing of experience and watching, you know, getting to have a hand in other people's recovery and growth. So during your survival period, you were sitting at like a nine, 10 mm-hmm. anxiety level every day. Yeah. Uh, when did it start to drop and when did you, and was it at that six month period of thriving where you felt a zero for the first time? Yeah, I think so. Because I had, because so even early sobriety, you still on edge because you don't know if this thing's going to work. Like my track record was like anywhere between two weeks and three months. And then I was back out. Um, I had gone in and out of recovery in and out of the rooms for different various reasons for to get out of trouble with the police, to please my girlfriend, my family member work. It was for somebody else or to make it look good. Once I hit six months, it was like, OK, this is actually feeling a little permanent it was longer than i had ever been clean and sober for one stretch this is doable it's doable and my life finally started to look manageable where in the past it wasn't it was complete unmanageability and chaos i couldn't imagine a life with drugs or alcohol anymore you know i couldn't imagine a life any different than it is today is meditation part of it yoga anything like that yeah so i tried just about everything when i was when i was like you know early sobriety it was tai chi and then that was a little too soft i think for me where i i I need to do the the boxing and the Muay Thai and I start to travel around with that stuff a little bit. But with some of those uh, like those combat sports, you know, you need kind of the yin and the yang. So um, with all that kind of aggressive output, you also need to come back and ground yourself with meditation. And was it hard to start to delve into sitting in silence for the first time? Hugely. I did a lot of guided meditation um, because I couldn't sit in silence with myself. My My mind was racing and I still had... You know, I still have moments of anxiety and, and anxiousness where, you know, you can't quiet the voice and, you know, it may be positive stuff, but it's still go, go, go. Yeah. So I've tried a, a bunch of different meditation styles and, you know, I have one that, that works for me. I do, I do try and do as much yoga as I can because I just find not only like for the community around it, but just the, you know, the well-being and the, just the way you feel like a different person when you come mm-hmm. out of a yoga session. And I'm really blessed to have some great people around me that are, um, that are instructors and, you know, teachers that have really helped me along the way with that kind of stuff too. And what's your best, uh, zone and flow state situation or uh, do you hike, do you bike, do you swim, um, ski, snowboard? Yeah, for me, it's different. I mean, I think for me, I get into it on a, on a long run. I like long distance running, but, um, the boxing and the Muay Thai, like that, that's the stuff for me that it's just like mind body connection and you, you've got to be completely present and you can't let, that's, that's a, I think a form of meditation because you can't let your outside thoughts anywhere near your, your mind because then you get hit and it's primal and that sort of thing is nice. Like it's, it, it makes you invigorated and you feel alive again. So for me, I do different things on different days that I need. I feel like I, I know what I need today. I know what to do that day to give me the right, you know, that, like you say, the, the flow state that you need to get in. I, I feel like you're learning about yourself. I definitely, yeah, every day when I think like this, this is what I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's a puzzle that'll never be complete. You know, that's, that's the fun part about it. It's like, you get to, you get to explore this for your whole life and keep evolving. That's a good point for people to sit on that. Yeah. If they're going to start down this path that you're not going to go away and do two weeks and you're good. Right. That it's an, an internal mindset. Yeah. It's an overall, like it's a mindset and it's a, you know, it's a mind body connection. Like you, if you're going to choose to change your life in any way with whatever you're dealing with, you know, you've got to change everything. The way you think, the way you act, the way you treat people, the way you treat yourself, the way you view situations and, uh, you know, and the way you react. Were you a, uh, were you a book guy? Were there any books or anything like that that stood out for you or movies or? Um, in recovery? Yeah. Did anybody ever, ha- oh, I'm sure you got, oh, you should really need to read this book. Yeah. Yeah. Which for some people, they eat it up. It's like, that's what they need to do. They mm-hmm. need to read about things. Or Was that that way for you? Did anything stand out? Um, uh, this is, It's going to sound cheesy, but my favorite book and the book that does the most for me is the actual the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That thing I read over and over and over again, and I find something new in it every time. I didn't even know the book existed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Everyone should read it. Okay. It's, got, it's, uh, it's life-changing. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I'll get you a copy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I like self-help stuff. I like reading. I like reading about, um, you know, celebrities that have gotten, you know, got sober and been through. Like, I like biographies, that kind of thing. It's kind of inspiring. I like, you know, listening to different podcasts is uh, very educational and you, you hear you hear a bit of yourself and in every podcast you listen to because you know you're listening to it for a reason right it's changed through the years though like you know i I, there was a time where i was reading a lot of stuff about you know buddhism and that sort of thing and um you know i like that just different philosophies i just find really interesting and you know to be open about that stuff and actually like hey i can take a piece of that from this book and a piece of something else from another one and you know, I'm not, I don't belong to one sort of sect or like you build your religion or anything like that. But yeah, you build your own sort of belief set and, uh, you know, yeah, add pieces to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how have you found um, helping others in these areas you've talked about? Have there been uh, really inspiring stories and you've witnessed firsthand recovery? Um, is it hard for you when you see them slide back? How's that experience been? Yeah, it's, uh, there's a little bit of both, right? Because as far as my sponsorship role goes with people, I do my best to help everyone I can who reaches out for the help. Sometimes my best isn't what they need at the time. Certainly there's been a lot of success stories and that's beautiful. And, you know, something that, that, that goes from a sponsor, sponsee relationship or, uh, you know, a mentor, mentee or, Mm -hmm. um, kind of relationship turns into just a beautiful friendship. And two people that are just along the way to a better, a you better life. Up. And yeah. yeah, you sync up and, and you, you help each other along the way. And it's not like, you know, it's not a teacher and a student. It's just like peers. Um, and that's, that's really nice. And that's beautiful. And we all can l- learn from uh, each other, no matter where we are, where we're at in life or where we are in our recovery or whatever we're dealing with. Some of the very difficult things though, is, you know, right now, uh, it's pretty scary out there with drugs. You know, there's a lot of stuff with the fentanyl going on and, and car fentanyl and these sort of things, all the opiate addictions right now, they're, they're stealing people from us every day. Drug addiction is different now than it was. It sure is. And I'm so grateful to be on the other side of it today because I, it's, it's Russian roulette. It's, it's insane. And we see this going to calls every day. We are going to overdoses and yeah, it's scary to see Like you know, we'll go to the same, the same house for the same person on an overdose three times in one week. And 
you know, they're just not getting it. And um, We went to the same guy twice, but in a different house in a different basement. Right. Yeah. I don't know what the odds of that were. But. Yeah. Overdose is just becoming like a thing. Like it's a, a regular occurrence now. With that being said, there's a lot of people that, um, I mean, and I, I can say for myself too, relapse has been a part of recovery. So I learned a lot from my 10 years of relapse, try again, relapse, try again. Um, I learned a lot about the power of my addiction and the weight of my addiction. Some people don't get that chance to come back and try again. And that's really sad. You know, I've seen it happen to uh, way too many people over, you know, the short the short time I've been in recovery and sponsoring people, I've lost way too many. And um, it's it's really, really, it's terrifying and it's sad. And that's a lot to deal with. And I used to take it really hard. Today, I understand that I did my best and my best just wasn't what they needed at the time. Um, and when but you time did what you up, could. I did what I could. And that's all I can do. Um, and all I can do is, you know, lead by example and, you know, really try to share the message, not force the message. Have you been in a number of situations where you are simply just saying, handing on your, your number and saying, hey, man, when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, was it an out-of-body experience the first time you did that with somebody that you were now on the other side? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, yeah, it was a very awe-inspiring moment to be able to hand over my number and say, I can help now to be that person. And that person who brought me to my first AA meeting um, passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. And I, I hold a place in my heart for him. I think that he saved my life because he set me on that path. And today I get to be that person for somebody else. And whether their life changes or not, I get to be in that position of I can just be an instrument along the way or I can point you in the right direction and you do have a chance and there is recovery out there and it's possible. And if you see me living a good life, if you see me living my best life in recovery, it's it's about attraction, not promotion. Um, how has social media been for you? You've used that to lead and inspire and, yeah. and uh, attract? For sure. Um, it's been infuriating at times. <laughs> But it's been a wonderful tool. I'm not big on social media. Um, I should be doing more and I should be more active on that than I am. And I, and I do plan to be. But to be able to share on a, on a different type of platform like that has been great because you can reach people, you know, all over the globe. And I've actually really been blown away with the response. You know, if I post something about recovery at times. Yeah, it seems redundant. You know, I feel like oh, I'm just bugging people about this. But then I'll get a message from somebody that says like, I just really needed to read what you what you posted today and I really needed to really I really connected with that or a new follower right that is reaching out for help my social media I mean Instagram in particular is dedicated to self-help and recovery and you know there's a video up there um that tells my story in about five minutes and um yeah you and I both participated in that yeah 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 so it's the mental health commission of Canada right um asked you and me and a few other people to to talk about our stories, right? Yeah. And uh, I'll put the link on the podcast awesome. the page so people can find that. Yeah, that'd be great. And your Instagram uh, link as well, if you want. For sure. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I think it's a great tool. Um, I've been able to reach a lot of people, you know, through the States and overseas and that sort of thing, too. Also, I've been able to be involved with some things overseas as well. Like I spent a lot of time in the Caribbean um, doing some some work with troubled youth and in the, the prison systems down there. And I also, you know, talking to the fire department there. And then so you mentioned that started with Muay Thai. Um, yeah. It? Yeah, it did. Well, so I, I've been, 
I've been traveling back and forth to Asia every year with training in uh, Muay Thai. And I did some speaking over there and just in different meetings. And I also spent a lot of time in Grand Cayman over the last couple of years. I've kind of linked up with a boxing and Muay Thai coach down there that does a lot of outreach work with uh, with youth. So I've you know kind of put together a program with him where we, we talk to the kids about, about substance abuse we get them active in sport and then they there's also another person that's um that's talking to them about like finances and how to properly like manage that sort of part of your life and um it's just kind of a feel-good project that that's helping getting kids kind of on the right direction because a lot of people on that island that you know kids that are growing up there they kind of don't have the direction that the that they need i'm doing some talking as well in the in the high schools and that sort of thing there too hopefully kind of talk to some of the different businesses as well um, I just want to get in and share my message to to everyone that I can because I think this is a it's a universal issue and people have the opportunity to change and I think it, the more voices we have out there uh, from people who are willing to be open and honest and talk about change and be inspirational about it I think you know the better chance that people have so I just want to try and get out there to as many people as possible. And um, it's wonderful to be able to, to take part in projects like that, to see kind of the, the fruits of your labor as well. You know, it's a it's really a beautiful thing. So the next five years, you think more of the same? You talked about maybe touring around maybe in Canada. Do you see yourself going to North uh, into the States as well? Or I mean, I would love to do that. I want to try to develop a, a program and, and share that with different fire departments to start with and um, see if I can branch out to different emergency services and, like I said, other businesses as well. Uh, honestly, whoever will listen. But, I mean, I want to I wanna be an example and a resource to people, you know, who are struggling. Do you think you'd uh, put it into a book? I'd, I'd really like to. I mean, um, I've had a few people approach me about it, talking about just, you know, they like the story. They like, uh, you know, they like the emergency service angle. They like the, you know, kind of the two different lives um, angle. So I have been kind of brainstorming ideas about that. It's something I definitely want to look into. I definitely, you know, definitely want to explore that opportunity. I don't know. I don't see myself as a writer, but I mean, it, it's something that I, I think that, you know, if you can, if you're passionate about something, it's gonna come out. If you, if you can put it down on with pen and paper, it's that that's amazing. And if you could share it with more people, then, and I think I'd need again something else. I'd need a lot of help with. So you know, it's again, I'm I'm gonna have to say, yes, I'd like to do this, and I need help. I'm pretty confident that there'll be plenty of it, just like there always is. I think it's an important point to you know, ask for help. You you weren't a firefighter to begin with, right? Yeah. Well, what does that take? Well, then you have to do A, B, C, and then keep learning, and then the next thing you know, you are. That's right. You weren't recovered before, and you got help, and now you are. Mm-hmm. So the same thing with writing. Yeah. Right? Someone co-writes with you, and right. maybe one book, maybe two books, and next thing you know, the third one, like, I'm good, and you're doing this on your own. Next thing you know, you're a writer. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, that'd be amazing. Yeah. And uh, I mean, but the yeah, the opportunities are endless, and um, I really look forward to exploring every opportunity I can that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if anyone's listening and they want to pick you up, then yeah, I'll put your uh, your Instagram page on for there. Sure. They want to find you. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> All right, I yeah. appreciate you being here, man. Well, thank you so this much. This was fantastic. Yeah, no, it's an honor to be able to uh, come and speak with you like this. Cool. All right, we'll talk again. Okay. Thanks See so you. much. Bye.